Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and with me to discuss what it's really like to be an MP as the current cohort decide whether to stick around in the Commons for another five years is Rosa Prince, editor of our CIS publication, The House Magazine, and author of Standing Down, Interviews with Retiring MPs. And we're delighted to say we're joined by Sir Vince Cable, former leader of the Liberal Democrats, who this year published a book on how to be a politician. So, so this week, Matt Hancock became the latest Tory MP to decide he was going to not stand as a Conservative at the next election. He'd made about 13, I think now, Tories, including key names like Sajid Javid, uh, Chloe Smith, William Ragg, Deanna Davidson. There are also at least 12 Labour MPs who are going to stand down the next election too there. People like Margaret Hodge, Harriet Harman, Margaret Beckett and Ben Bradshaw. So sort of a, more of the kind of older MPs and a kind of a changing of the guard. Rose, I just wonder what you'd made of uh, that group of MPs on, on either side and that kind of list of, of MPs standing down and if we're going to see a few more? I think we will see more. Um, the Conservatives sort of clearly tried to get a bit of control over the situation because in past election cycles, it's been a bit chaotic with MPs kind of suddenly dropping out and I think the party wanted to get a grip. So they gave uh, this deadline of December 5th. Now, my view is that not all MPs will stick to that and, and maybe some haven't yet made up their minds. So they might well want to, uh, you know, in a month or two or even a, a year, decide that actually, standing again isn't for them so I think you're right I think what's really interesting about who's standing down is the broad range and particularly those younger conservative MPs who who just feel that that parliament isn't for them Mm. I suppose those who are looking for sort of a post-commons career those who think actually we're not going to get back into government having been ministers already and others who sort of cite family life there seems that there's often different decisions but I wonder if you thought there was anything to the idea that especially on the conservative side it's looking at the polls it's looking what's going to be happening in perhaps two years time and thinking you know especially for those ones who've been around post 2010 they've never experienced life in opposition perhaps you know life outside parliament starting to look a bit more enticing I think there's something in that. I definitely think that um, many of them aren't that confident that they'll get back into power and don't really fancy a spell on the opposition benches. I think actually as much as that, it's that so many of them haven't really enjoyed their time as MPs. It's been a really strange parliament for them. If you remember, the, the people who were elected in 2019 had such an odd start. They'd barely got their feet under the table and they were kind of banished from the building because of lockdown and the pandemic. And that really stopped them getting that sense of camaraderie in their first few months that most MPs enjoy. And that dragged on and on. And then it's been a, a fractious time. I mean, the Conservative Party hasn't been a happy place. We've had multiple pushes against prime ministers, rebellions, revolts, and also this sort of backdrop of bullying and harassment. And and generally, I I kind of get the impression from MPs I speak to that it's not a happy ship. And I would put that as the main reason for why many of them are standing down rather than necessarily because they they feel that their Conservatives won't win the next election. Yeah, on the flip side, obviously, in 2019, an awful lot more MPs started to stand down. One of them's sat opposite me now. Vince Cable, you stood down at the election in 2019. What was kind of your behind your thinking then to, to stand down? Well, I wasn't um, yet 80, and I thought I was young enough to start a new career, which is <laughs> basically what I've done. Um, and I thought I'd been there and done that. I, yeah. mean, I had five years as a cabinet minister in a senior role. I'd been party leader. I was passing on to the next generation. I mean, if I'd hung around, I would have been in this very depressing parliament, actually. Mm. I I realised I made a good mood in retrospect. (laughs) I didn't know the pandemic was coming, but all the MPs I speak to have had a pretty miserable time. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting because, I mean, obviously you first stood to be an MP, I think, in 1966, when you, you lost your seat in 2015. What made you decide 
to stand again in 2017, was it, did you always know you were going to stand again or was it the fact the snap election came around and you thought, actually, no, I'm going to, I'm going to have another go at it? Yeah, well, it was more the latter, but, but I think there's a sort of streak of bloody mindedness. I mean, I just <laughs> don't like being beaten. And, <laughs> right. and, uh, I was given a chance to stand. I didn't expect it. It's yeah. just Theresa Blair had a rush of blood to the head when she was up in the Alps and made a rather bad judgment. But, mm. but given the opportunity, I sort of jumped at it. And I was very lucky. I'm in my party rallied round, they sent a lot of troops to, to help me in Twickenham. We got back with a very big majority and um, the rest is history. Mm. Uh, Rosie, you obviously wrote a book about uh, speaking to MPs who, who decided to to stand down. What's the kind of, what was the kind of, what the take that you got from that? What the kind of, was it again a broad measure? Was there a kind of recurring theme about those who, who decided to stand down? Yeah, I, mean, I actually wrote, wrote two books um, of interviews with um, MPs as they prepared to stand down. And there is definitely a contrast with today because it really was, I mean, it was slightly self-selecting because obviously perhaps there were some who were a bit more negative about their reasons for standing down who didn't want to talk to me. But the ones I spoke to were, were largely those who had kind of come to the end of their careers in terms of feeling like they either were um, a bit older and they wanted to retire or that they wanted that one last job, that they felt that it was time for them to get out and make maybe make a little bit of money before they relaxed so really not many young people at that point who were going because they just didn't like it and didn't enjoy the experience it was much more they'd had a good run they were a bit older and they were kind of ready to hang up their spurs you know on the Tory side I think it's very likely that the the career issue I mean if you're somebody like Sajid Javid who's done some of the big jobs in government and you stayed behind assuming you'd won you know, the best you could hope for probably is, you know, running a select committee for a few years. Quite fun, but, mm. but probably not his his take. So I, I would have thought with the Tories, probably it is a recognition that we're, we're at one of those swings of the pendulum, which is going to go against them. With the Labour people, I suspect your Margaret Hodges and of this world are probably a bit like me. You know, they've, they've been there, have done it, they've done interesting jobs and they're looking to do something else before they're too old to enjoy life. Mm. Yeah, I th- mentioned- I'll just add one thing. I, th- I think the timing of exit is rather important. I mean, mm. a sort of dignified retirement. I mean, I just think about Dennis Skinner, who, you know, was a great character for decades, but he just couldn't resist the temptation to hang on one more time to be the father of the house yeah. and, of course, lost in rather humiliating circumstances. And I suspect at the back of the mind of people with more marginal seats, that's a factor. Mm, yeah, and also I suppose there's, there's a few Conservative MPs like Chris Skidmore and I think Andrew Percy as well, who in the boundary review, either their seats are going to be mm. abolished or massively sort of decimated and, and changed. And so therefore, I suppose the old you know, chicken run that people used to do moving constituencies. MPs tend not to do that so much. And actually for those, I suppose it's about, as Vince says, a more of a dignified exit in deciding the terms of their of their retirement. There is another thing which MPs do factor in, and Vince probably knows more about this than me, but there is a question of, of getting a, a kind of payment. So if you stand mm. again and lose your seat, you, you might get a bit more money than if you go voluntarily. You kind of get that redundancy payment. And, you know, M- MPs are human beings and they have bills to pay. And, and that is definitely a factor for some of them they decide to run even though they know they're lost because they they would quite fancy that that payment at the end of it all mm. one of my former colleagues did that he was seriously unpopular because we were desperate that he should go but uh, yeah it, it's it is part of the motivation yeah and you sometimes see that within the, with uh, someone loses the whip 
ship and they're not they don't get it back they still stand as an independent because they they get i think you get something like a month's pay for every year you've been in the job up until a certain point so it is not inconsiderable amounts of a sort of parachute payment as opposed to sort of just quietly letting someone else stand for that for that kind of seat i just wondered though about some of it you know Sajid javid one of the ones we talked about he obviously had a successful career before he entered the commons and he's only 52 probably thinks he's got quite a large earning potential but i suppose for some of those mps who've only been mp for maybe one or two terms I just wonder what you both thought of what actually the earning potential is of someone like that. Is there much of a market for XMPs, you know, out there? Well, I think not. I mean, there is this old saying, there's nothing quite as X as an XMP. I mean, clearly, if you've been Chancellor of the Exchequer or Prime Minister, then there's a big earnings possibility. But as, as I discovered in 2015, you know, you have to work to get interesting assignments because people, you know, write you off. They're looking at the next generation, new thoughts, new ideas, new people. People just shouldn't assume that they're going to have people rushing to offer them non-executive directorships or mm. whatever it is that, that they're looking for. Yeah, yeah. We, we have a column, um, as you know, Alan, in the House magazine where we go and talk to catch up with an old MP and where are they now, we call it. And actually several of them have, have mentioned this, that they thought that they'd be, you know, have their pick of lots of lucrative jobs to choose from. And and the opposite turned out to be true. They, they've actually struggled. Some of them have found it quite distressing. There was one former MP who had served on a committee and felt really passionately about a particular area and applied for a job at the charity that was most associated with that and, and was really surprised and quite upset that she didn't even get an interview. So it's definitely not, I think, a sort of dead cert that they can walk into a job of their choosing. And, and particularly now, if they've not been in Parliament for very long or if there's a big outtake, you know, if there's lots of them losing their jobs or standing down at the same time, there's a kind of a glut on the market and they may struggle. I think it's actually worse than that. I mean, I think a survey was done of XMPs, which tended to show that there was quite a serious incidence of depression and mental illness. Mm. And it, it, it can be for a variety of factors. I mean, for those who have lost, I mean, losing an election, I mean, people lose their jobs in all walks of life, but there's a sort of public humiliation associated with it, and particularly people who've lived in their own community and they're, you know, they're nobody now the following morning. And they may be, you know, their qualifications are obsolete. They may have qualified in some interesting subject at university 30 years ago, but it's no longer relevant. And they find that there is no demand for them. And mm. there's this sense of rejection under employment, and it can have you know, medical implication. Yeah, and I think I've definitely noticed it was certain MPs who were cabinet ministers, you know, used to having the sort of the, the chauffeured car and the red box. And it's not just that, it's having the sort of, having your day, people there to help plan your day and schedule everything around you. And then suddenly that, all those trappings are just gone in an instant and you're sort of left to your own devices in that sense. And I suppose for some people that can be quite a jarring experience. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think they do come down w- with a bump. And I've yes, I've spoken to former MPs who found it found it quite traumatic as you say they they're used to being fated wherever they go they're used to being being special I suppose and I think several MPs who I've spoken to have really found that an odd experience to go through they miss parliament and and that can manifest itself in different ways some of them never want to go there again and sort of stay away and don't go anywhere near London and others you kind of see them haunting the corridors and they turn up every day as if as if they'd never left as if they were still MPs and one thing we haven't talked about at quite a 
common new job is actually just just staying put and going into the House of Lords. And increasingly, mm. ex-MPs really look to that for their future, I think, um, as we've seen with the rather controversial honours list that Boris Johnson has just published, where he's named MPs who are, who are still serving, including one who's actually in the Cabinet. Hmm. Yes, well, that's becoming an increasingly less attractive option because, you know, the the value of a peerage now is seriously reduced. I mean, I use the word corruption carefully, but, but the idea that you can buy a peerage by making a large party donation, it's cast a shadow over everybody. I mean, there's only a small number of them, but and there's some very fine people there doing good work. But unfortunately... I think the concept of a, of a lord or lady is now very much diminished. Mm. Just rewind slightly to sort of the bit before an MP decides to to, to stand down. You know, you obviously like I said were last in the Commons in between 2017 and 2019, which again was quite a difficult period with all the sort of Brexit wars. Did you find that period? as enjoyable as, as previous years? And is, is, is a sense actually that sometimes actually being an MP is, is less enjoyable perhaps than it once was? And that's one of the reasons why people decide life outside Parliament might be easier. Well, I didn't find that period in Parliament very satisfying. I mean, mainly because there was only one subject. I yeah. mean, you know, there were question times for other departments and so on, but there was only one issue on the MP's mind. And it became very boring. <laughs> uh, you know, people were making the same speech 20 yeah. times. Well, I was sat in the press with, gallery with minor listening to the same ones, words. yeah. People became heroes because of they'd got their head around some obscure bit of procedure. I was interested in doing, you know, other things yeah, uh, yeah. and trying out new ideas. And I, I, I managed to get very high up on the private members' ballot to do something on assisted dying. And I thought that was really rather an important subject. But, but of course, it was completely submerged yeah. in all the Brexit stuff. Rosa, I just wondered, what you, if you were an MP, I suppose, in, in, elected in 2017, you'd have had the sort of Brexit wars and then the pandemic. I can't imagine that's entirely what a lot of people grow up thinking life in Parliament is going to be like, especially if you've been, say, a Labour MP only never known opposition it's probably not actually been the most enjoyable time and I suppose the decision is do you want to stick around until 2024 in the hope that actually you might finally taste life on the other side of the other of the chamber yeah it kind of reminds me a bit of the commons in 2010 which was when the expenses scandal broke um I was working for the telegraph at time at the time and was very involved with that scandal and after that a lot of MPs just didn't want to be there anymore they felt really upset and affronted and they got a lot of flack from the public and and that was an extremely big moment where that there was quite a large outtake. I've just made up a word there, outtake as opposed to intake. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. <laughs> I'm going to run with it. But yeah, lot, lots of MPs, I think it was well over 100, maybe even 150 announced their resignations, partly in response to the scandal. They say, look, I'm getting so much heat, I'm, I'm not going to run again. And others just uh, as the, the months fo- that followed that, they just sort of lost their love of it. And you definitely see people around the Commons who, who kind of feel like they've lost their love of it. They don't mm. enjoy it. They spend quite a lot of time complaining about each other (laughs) about their party about their party managers so yeah I think you're right I think it's not a particularly happy ship at the moment if you're a Labour MP it's probably looking a little bit perkier because they're beginning to dream that they actually could do this and and to go into into government but on the whole it's not a place of real accord and and bliss (laughs) no no. I I think there's another factor also that's made it quite difficult for a lot of MPs I mean factionalism has always been there of course but uh, in recent years it has been quite vicious 
I mean, the whole Corbyn, non-Corbyn arguments and yeah. the people who were inside the tents and the people who weren't. I mean, it became very personal and very unpleasant. I'm not there at the moment, but I would imagine that between the different groups of Tories, it's, it's equally bad. And that's important, not just because it sometimes spills over into personal relationships, but it affects, you know, promotion opportunities. I mean, you get a job in government not because of who you are or how good you are and what you've done, but because you're aligned with the right faction. And that's very dispiriting, I think, for people who've come into Parliament trying to do something useful. Yeah, I mean, your book about how to be a politician, I think a lot lot of people who go into politics are quite ideological and quite starry-eyed about wanting to pursue their particular passion projects and, and you're quite clear in, in, in your book that actually the way to get ahead is is actually climbing that greasy pole and it's perhaps the ideologues ones might actually be squeezed out I just wondered if you thought that actually a more positive message I suppose for people who want to become an MP or do you think actually it is still it's quite a grubby business in, in general well I start off in the book with a, with a fairly cynical opening and I'm talking to a teenager who says I'm interested in being a politician I say really <laughs> um, and I quit at him Billy Connolly's view that anybody who expresses a wish to be a politician should be barred for life from ever <laughs> becoming one. But having started on a very cynical note, I then build up the more positive arguments. You know, there are things you can do. You can make a difference to individuals' life through your casework. You can do legislation. You can shift the, the balance of public opinion. And you can finish up, well, not exactly loved, but highly respected. And I think the final sentence in my book referred to my visiting the grave of John Smith in, in the island of Iona. I once worked for him and you know, there is this tribute that, you know, an honest man is the noblest work of God. Mm. And some politicians, some ex-MPs, finish up with that kind of reputation. So it, it is possible to do it right and possible to do good stuff. Since mm. you mentioned a quote there, a, a religious quote, because actually I, I think I've definitely noticed in the Commons that it sort of skews more religious, I think, than wider society. I just wondered if you'd noticed that there's sort of a sense of, perhaps these days you have to have a real sense of public duty which maybe comes from having a faith which is more likely to get you involved in politics maybe than than someone who doesn't have that kind of faith i I think so and so there's a surprisingly large turnout for prayers actually at half past two at question time you know some mps are sitting conspicuously to make the point they're not part of it but you know there is a fairly high degree of observance i Mm. mean not everybody is a sort of rabidly religious but i think it adds to the sense of occasion and respect yeah i think you're right i think there is something of a, a calling if you want to be an mp but look there's no shortage of individuals who do want to do it for all that Mm. you hear about oh it's so terrible and the series of scandals and they're not paid enough and all the grumbles every time a seat comes up it's hotly contested not just between parties but within parties you you get numerous people who stand for marginal seats as hot competition but but also for real no hopers because people think if they fight one seat then hopefully next time around they'll get a, a safer one I don't think it is putting people off I just worry that when they get there they become a bit disillusioned and, and don't really enjoy it yeah, and one of the things we haven't touched upon yet is is the role of social media, I think, in, in more recent times. A lot of MPs I speak to, you know, either some of them have come off social media or they no longer, only their staff look at it for them because they find that it's it started out as a good way of communicating with voters and kind of that individual touch that you might get. But actually now it's become... A, a much worse place to be a politician and actually it's much less enjoyable and it's it's partly the what the campaigns that are created on social media that actually put off I think a lot of MPs especially young women especially from from getting involved because of the sort of abuse that you can get. 
No, in, in general, I, I wouldn't encourage politicians to complain about the media, social or otherwise. Sure. I mean, I think there's, you know, Enoch Powell's old quote that it's like fishermen complaining about the sea. I mean, it's part of the world we live in and yeah. part of our work, and we have to learn to master it, even though old codgers like me have struggled to learn how to use the, <laughs> use the machines and, and so on, but you, you, you've got to do it. Yeah. And the nasty bit is, of course, that you can be attacked not by somebody heckling at a meeting, but by people trolling you anonymously and often viciously. And it's all very well for people like me to say, have a thick skin and just put up with it. But I think some people, particularly, as you say, young women who've been threatened with violence and sexual violence, it's a very, very offensive and difficult to deal with. Mm. Yeah, Rosa, have you noticed the, the real difference between sort of when you first covered Parliament to now? Definitely, yeah. And, you know, it's a it's very direct social media. It's, it's right there. It kind of MPs who I've spoken to say how it's there in your living room. You know, if you're being trolled or, or threatened, it's right there in your hand on your phone and you can see it. I mean, I think that's probably there's a wider debate about whether social media companies are taking their responsibilities seriously and protecting high profile individuals like this. I think sort of away from the threats and so on, which ought to be illegal, or at least ought to be enforced, the sort of wider question of how you engage with social media is something I think that each MP has to figure out for themselves. And I think some of them have done a better job of that than others. Some of them are quite rigorous and just sort of tweet quite innocuous stuff about their constituency visits and so on. Others really engage and get into fights on social media, which I'm not sure is yeah. that healthy for themselves or for their constituents, really. Mm. One of the things that you touched on earlier was about the amount of money that MPs get paid. There's often, I spoke to an MP who said, oh, look, with my CV, I could get paid a quarter million pounds a year in the city, you know, so I'm sort of choosing to have my wages reduced to be an MP. You know, I, I do wonder, obviously, there's also talk about clamping down on second jobs. I just wondered, Vince, do you think that there is a, an argument to be made about increasing MP salaries? Obviously, other countries like Singapore pay MPs a lot, lot more. Or is it a sense that you, you aren't going to attract the right people if you don't pay more? Or where do you sit on that kind of debate? No, I, I don't think there's a strong argument for lifting MPs subst- pay substantially. I mean, some feel it's demeaningly <laughs> low. I mean, but actually, it's quite a respectable salary. I think it's 82,000 yeah. plus various perks and a decent pension. I mean, I, I do a lot of speaking in schools and colleges, and people sometimes say, well, you know, how much are you paid? And when you when I say this is the salary, they gasp with disbelief. You know, <laughs> right. this is might be millions. It's yeah, a yeah, lot yeah, of yeah. people. And, and as we just heard, I mean, there's no shortage of people queuing up to be MPs for winnable seats. So it's if there was a serious supply and demand imbalance, you might want to use the market mechanism of salaries, but it's not, not an issue, I don't think. Yeah, Rosa, do you think there's a talent problem with in terms of wages or do you think actually it's it's at the right sort of balance at the moment? It's really hard because MPs come in at such different stages of, of their lives. So the MP who you spoke to, who was sort of dreaming of a city job, yeah, it probably feels like a, a, a pittance. But you've got some people who are coming in in their 20s, perhaps they've been in public sector jobs, which are quite low paid compared to an MP and they feel quite differently about it. Also, obviously, you've got people coming in from all around the country. So a low wage to some someone who's in London and having to pay high housing costs is going to be quite different to to somebody who's in a more far-flung area where perhaps their costs are very different. So it's something that we 
talk about and write about quite a lot in the house, the sort of varied experience of being an MP and people coming in at different stages of their careers. I mean, yeah, you might want to kind of make your money first and then come in, or you might want to come in as a young person and then go off and make some money, or you might be a lifer who feels that 80 odd thousand pounds a year is a, a pretty good salary. I mean, I don't know if I can take that decision for MPs. I suppose <laughs> the individual has to decide for themselves if it, if it suits them and their family. But I, I think I agree with Vince. I, I don't think the amount that people are being paid is putting people off. I don't think that's the issue. I think if if we are being put off and if, if the brightest and best talents aren't being attracted, I, I don't think it's necessarily the, the wages that's the reason. Yes, yeah. and I, I would add to that, that even if people feel privately that they're rather underpaid, the worst thing they can do is to complain about it. I mean, nothing attracts more contempt <laughs> and anger in the popular media than MPs whinging about their salary. No, absolutely not. Just uh, one one last topic that we sort of touch on, and you know, was recording on, on on Thursday morning. On Wednesday nights, both Labour and the Conservatives moved to suspend one of their own MPs, Julian Knight, the Conservative MP, and Conor McGinn, the Labour MP, over various allegations. Rosa, we've covered a lot of stuff on in the House magazine and on Politics Home about harassment in the Commons and and, and bad behaviour of MPs. Do you think that actually for some part of the issue is actually that it's not potentially a very safe workplace still and that five years on from the Pestminster scandal and there are lots of these issues still coming up and actually that's it's not necessarily a very enticing place to work in that sense. Yeah, it's funny. The the timing was so strange because we'd had a meeting of the House board, which is when MPs and peers get together with me and discuss what topics they'd like to, to have in the House. And we had been speaking about just this issue because there's a commission underway at the moment, which is trying to decide some rules for MPs who are investigated for. Is that led by the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And and actually, the MPs who were, I was speaking to were saying it's not as simple. I think some of the staff organisations do want MPs to be suspended and and not be allowed to go into Parliament and perhaps not vote or if they voted do it by proxy and every suggestion that comes up seems that there's a kind of counter reason why it can't happen. One reason perhaps is that it would identify for example the victim if the MP was named and suspended. The idea that they could kind of zoom in to do votes seemed to the MPs I was speaking to to really a strange solution that there'd be a kind of looming head there in the Commons chamber or someone when we haven't even been able to sort of arrange for that for people who are disabled or sick to take part in votes so Parliament is a funny place I always wonder why we can't just deal with these issues as any other big organisation would I mean what happens in a university for example if someone is accused of bullying or harassment or what happens in a even in a government department there are the sort of HR rules that seem to govern other institutions quite well and I'm never quite clear why Parliament can't deal with matters the same way. Well, I, I, I agree with you. It is a mess. It is very difficult. I mean, I was party leader for a couple of years and I think nothing consumed more emotional energy than complaints and appeals. I'm, I'm fully in favour of having a strict system. If, if somebody has been involved in sexual harassment or bullying, then of course it must be taken absolutely seriously, independently investigated with appropriate sanctions. But you've got to balance that against the perfectly good British judicial principle of innocent until proved guilty. I've come across several cases of people who were actually innocent, but their reputation was permanently tarnished by the accusation. So getting it right in both directions is very, very difficult. And that's why it's important to have a very clear code of conduct that isn't just making it up as you go along, but is very clearly understood by everybody and based on 
as you say, the kind of good practice you get in the civil service and other institutions. Yeah, hopefully we'll, the commission will kind of deal with some of the stuff that wasn't really covered by the last time this was all came around, the, the setting up of the independent complaints and, and grievance services. Just one final thing, Vince, what would you say to someone who did want to become an MP? Would you would you tell them that it was a, a good idea? What advice would you would you give them? And is it still, you know, as, as enticing now in 2022 as it was when you first joined in 1997? Yeah, despite... My earlier cynicism, I think it is a very important role and public life does need people, democracy needs people. So, you know, if you want to do it, you do it and don't give up. I mean, it's not like a normal profession. It's not like being a doctor, you go through a series of learning stages and qualifications and you progress up a ladder. It's not like that. So much depends on chance, being in the right place at the right time in the right party. But if you want to do it, it's a worthwhile thing to do and you've got to stick with it and not give up at the first sign of difficulty. As someone who sees MPs, you know, day in, day out, I know they get a bad rep, but I'm just filled with admiration for the vast majority of them. There obviously are a few bad apples, but I think that happens in every organisation you're going to encounter. The majority of them really want to do their best for the public and, and they have an ethic of public service and they try very hard and they work very hard and on the whole do a, do a brilliant job. So I'm sounding slightly toadying at this point, but I don't want to give the impression <laughs> they're all out for themselves and it's all awful I, I genuinely think that MPs are a force for good in our country yeah, yeah. that's all we've got time for this week but you can read all the latest on the big stories in Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our 7 day a week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right hand corner of the website thanks to my guests Rosa Prince and Vince Cable our editor today was Laura Silver thanks to you all again for listening please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review if you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown.